Any information in this podcast is not intended to promote or recommend any particular product or services offered by Bell's family and associates. It does not take into account the objectives, financial situation, or needs of any investor. Before making an investment decision, investors should seek professional advice. At the end of the day, we know the economy is slow. We know that inflation is, well, possibly moderate. But the Fed has a target. Their target is 2%. And if the Fed wants to hit that target, they need to keep jamming rates higher. That was Gavin, I'm Rish, and this is Tomorrow's News. This week, Gavin and I are talking about whether we're seeing the start of a pivot from central banks globally and how the markets have been responding to that. Let's dive in. Hi, Gavin. How are you going? Hey, how are you? Good. Over the last week or so, it seems like there's been a lot more data that's indicating volatility on a more global level. There have been policy responses to that data. And overall, it doesn't seem to me, like at least to me, right? Like it doesn't seem like there's a clear direction we're heading in. We've seen the Bank of England launch a historic intervention to stabilize the economy, which led to a historic drop in the pound. We've also seen the Reserve Bank of Australia sort of make that little pivot and raise interest rates only 26 basis points instead of anticipated 50. How much tightening are you seeing and for how long? What do you think investors should expect? Look, it's a great question. It's funny you mentioned the BOE because it was in fact the government in the UK that cut taxes without having any way of finding new revenue that the market believed, which created a sell-off in the bond market, which had already been selling off, created a sell-off in the pound because people really worried about how they were going to finance all of this. And then that created, and this is sort of an example that we're seeing everywhere around how much financial conditions are tightening, that created the problem for pension funds who suddenly had a mark to market that they need to meet to produce collateral. And when they tried to produce that collateral, of course, they sold the most liquid stuff, some equities, of course, which have been going down and some bonds. Of course, bonds are generally liquid, but you know there wasn't a lot of liquidity in the bond market. So it caused this death spiral. So the BOE realized, although they've been saying, oh, no, we're going to you know, be buying back bonds or letting bonds run off or we're doing quantitative tightening. In fact, what they did was sort of a quantitative easing. They went and bought bonds, the same thing they did in 2020. And they had to do that. And they had to do it because the amount of tightening in financial markets is ridiculous at the moment. And so we haven't seen it play out in the most important market, which is the bond market, credit markets. It's really happened to equity markets first. To some extent, it's happened to credit markets now in in the UK, in the pension world. But we haven't seen it bubble through, call it the day-to-day marketplace. Now, I would argue that's about to happen. Unless the Fed does something to ease financial conditions, there is going to be a problem. You know, on the weekend, everybody worried about Credit Suisse. Well, look, Credit Suisse is never going to go bankrupt. I mean, doesn't the equity may be worthless, but that's different than the liquidity crisis. In general, I would say global banks, unless 
they have probably a some kind of error in how they're constructing their balance sheet, trading error or something else, or they're generally pretty resilient today. So global banks aren't the issue. The issue is... Sorry, I just wanted to pause you there and ask you, what's the difference here between this and like what might have happened with Credit Suisse and the liquidity crisis? If we look back to the GFC, banks effectively had less available capital on their balance sheets for times when they couldn't access funding markets. So it was easier because of the way they constructed their business, easier for them to get into trouble, right? And then as one got into trouble, it sort of led to a contagion with others. And we've spent the last you know, decade or more making sure that these globally significant banks don't have that problem. So I don't think the problem is going to happen in the banks. Now, there's always you know something that can happen, but I don't think it's going to happen in the banks globally, even if it's mortgages or whatever. But like all things, when you close off some taps of financing, you open up financial innovation elsewhere. And you know, at the end of the day, I think that there's been a lot of innovation. And with that innovation, generally comes people who think that they can take advantage of the fact that global banks are now more conservative and they can lend to what a bank might perceive as a riskier customer, but they say, no, 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 you don't understand them as well as we do. It's not as risky a customer. And at the end of the day, if you want to create a crisis, Generally, the crisis isn't about equity. It's about debt. It's about the fact that we economies need leverage to grow. And when you shut off those taps, those liquidity taps, very quickly, everything shuts down. So recently, you've seen China, despite their desire to radically deleverage the real estate businesses and development, but real estate development businesses be forced to provide liquidity into the system. Because if they didn't, none of these firms could operate for another day. I mean, you might argue, well, they were probably over leveraged or, or the structure of their firms was inappropriate. But now that you're here, if you let it continue, what you'd have is all of these firms going bankrupt. And in this case, you would leave people with unfinished homes on the hook. And that generally tends to be a bad thing for the broad economy, bad thing for consumer sentiment, a bad thing politically, and so forth. So at the end of the day, the Fed, the PBOC all have some element where they need to do the same thing the right thing. And the right thing is let's make sure that we don't put everybody out of business because if we do, it's really hard to revive them afterwards. Cool. Yeah. No, there was a recent UN report that warned the Federal Reserve and central banks across the world to course correct and sort of slow down in anticipation of this, right? So I guess the question is, do you think we're going to be in for a soft landing or a deep recession? How long do you think this is going to last? What's our way out of this? What does it look like? Look, nobody knows that answer. 
people postulate the Fed doesn't know the answer. I mean, if you listen to Jerome Powell, he says, look, we don't know. At the end of the day, you've got some very blunt instruments and you've got massive economic engines that are highly complex with individuals and companies making individual decisions which have derivative impacts and so forth. So it is like, you know, trying to understand the planet, you know, in a sentence. It's an incredibly complex organism. So we can make fun of the Fed. We can make fun of the fact that they were late on inflation. We can make fun of the fact that they're overly tightening here, and they certainly are. But we're on this roller coaster now. But we're on the roller coaster. So when you're on the roller coaster, you just don't know how it's going to play, right? And you don't know, I mean, you look at data, but you don't know whether or not companies that have struggled to hire people are going to wait much longer than they would in a normal cycle to lay people off and thus keep the unemployment rate quite unnaturally low because they've been concerned about this prior scenario? Or are they going to react exactly the same way that they've reacted in every other cycle and and quickly shed employees to protect their margins and sales and so forth? You don't know. When you change economic conditions as we did through COVID, you end up with a lot of attendant effects, you know, different effects. You know, housing is really interesting, right? We're going to talk a little about housing, right? So what's going on, right? That price of interest rates went down, price of houses went up. Now, price of real estate went up. Now, a couple of different things going on, though, in the background, right? One of those things was remote work, right? You know, remote work is not unknown in 2019, but it was not the standard. Why do you work for a tech company? No, it definitely wasn't. Plus, there's also an increase in demand just from the fact that there are more millennials than there were Gen Xers. There are more Gen Z who want houses and supply just isn't matching. Right, right. And, and, and supply isn't matching in the places that those folks who are now maybe working remotely want to buy or, or, or can buy. The average house price in, in some of these third-tier cities was lower, and the, the incomes of the people that were coming in were higher than had historically been you know, purchasers in that region. So you bumped houses up a lot. Well, now what happens, right? Well, you could say, well, there's going to be some reversal in remote work, and I think we, we would agree we've seen that. You say, well, there's going to be no more new people moving into those areas. So you probably, you know, don't have a lot of new demand. Okay, that's fine. But hey, if you've decided to relocate to the suburbs or relocate to Boise, Idaho, or wherever it is, you don't necessarily move right away. And if you're not moving, you're not selling. So even if you overpaid for your house and still got your job, you don't do anything. So we may see shelter costs, housing costs, linger at these high levels for a long time. much longer than we think. And that can cause, you know, because there's no new construction happening because, of course, there's not a lot of credit around and so forth. And there's a shortage in any case of of this multifamily housing and single family home. You may see that linger. And so that inflation, that impact, the cost of shelter, which has been a big part of CPI, may linger longer than we thought. And if that happens, here the Fed is with their blunt instrument, right? What do we see from Nike? Nike says, we got more inventory than we've ever had, right? 
disaster. Stock was down, disaster inventory-wise. You've seen it in all the retailers through the whole year. You've seen it in terms of shrinking demand, even in entertainment and so forth. At the end of the day, we know the economy is slowing. We know that inflation is, well, possibly moderating. But the Fed has a target, and their target is 2%. And if the Fed wants to hit that target, they need to keep jamming rates higher. Now, that's what they've been said they're going to do. Now, what does the market think as of Monday? The market says BOE, financial conditions overly tight. You're basically causing an accident. Australia, RBA, financial conditions are really tight. The interest rates for mortgages is up 200 basis points over the last four or five months for Australians. It's so tight, we're not going 50 basis points. We're going to go 25 because we don't want to scare the world here. Everyone's going, wow, we've really tightened up. But, you know, so the, what has the market said in the last few days? Is it all we think they might be not, maybe they're not going to go 75, they're going to go 50 in November. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, it kind of depends on the data. It depends on CPI. Depends Do on whether or not we have Do you think that's low enough? Well, look, it isn't mathematically, but these things don't move Even linearly. as a signaling mechanism, do you think that would be enough of a signal for the markets? What would be enough of a signal, sorry? Going to 50 basis points instead of 75. Oh, yeah. Look, I mean... Do you think they should go lower? Do you think that's enough of a signal for the markets with the chain of events happening at the moment? Because that means you, between now and November, so much more can happen. Right. I mean, absolutely. It's exactly that. So much more can happen. I mean, next week, we're going to CPI and so forth. But at the end of the day, if the Fed governor came out and said, look, you know, Bostick is talking tomorrow or whatever. And they're saying, oh, 75 feels like awfully heavy given how tight financial conditions are. And the market came to believe it was 50 versus 75, which is kind of priced in right now, price 75. Market really came to believe it was 50. I think the S&P would be at 41.50, maybe 4,200. Now, in a way that it that would certainly be an overshoot for sure, but it would show two things. It would show that the Fed is cognizant that the work they've been doing in tightening financial conditions so quickly is taking hold and they're a little worried and that we're closer to the end than the beginning. You know, we know we're closer to the end, but we don't know how close. If they go 75, then I think the pace could be 75, 50, 25, or 50, you know, there's all kinds of math. I mean, sort of get another 150 basis points in here or something. But if we're closer to the end, the market is a forward discounter and you will see, I think, markets rally. Now, that may be premature, but at the end of the day, if I could tell you for certain that a company that earnings last quarter were 10, this quarter they're going to be eight. The next quarter, they're going to be three or four, but they're going to be back to 10 by middle of next year or end of next year. You're going to price for the 10 at the end of next year. You're going to look through the trough. And that's what markets do. They look through those troughs. And so I think markets will look through that trough. Now, it won't all be perfect and even, but I think by and large, markets will reflect a better future. Now, what bad things happen? What bad things happen is, Financial conditions continue to tighten. The fact that markets have rallied a little, bonds have come back a little, you know, the yield has come down a little bit from the, you know, across the curve. Maybe the Fed worries, 
Mm, conditions are easing prematurely. We've got to keep them tight to slow this economy down. So if we don't do it, inflation is going to continue to truck along at too high a level for too long. Which I was thinking might also, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I was thinking might also happen if the market is expecting them to only raise at 50 and they don't, sorry, they don't lower it or raise it at 50 and the market takes that as a confirmation and investors start easing, like it starts easing up too fast. So at the end of the day, you got two functions, right? You got a signaling function and you've got a reality, right? And so the signaling function is really important here. Market says 75. If you want to change the signal, well, change the signal. That's important. At the end of the day, if the market says 75 and you want to make sure people know it's going to be 75, they're going to have to start talking about that or not. Of course, they can kind of let it go wherever it's going to go. So you have to think about what the Fed is trying to do is maneuver a combination of factors, which is the behavior of markets, as well as the fact of markets, in order to create or to ensure the stability of prices and employment. Those are the things they care about, right? In their view, people might debate it, is if inflation is stable, say stable at 2%, but it could really be stable at any point, but stable, then people can make investment decisions, people can make capital allocation decisions, businesses can operate and so forth. So what they try to do, of course, is create that stability. Now, with a joke, of course, is that they then go and do a whole bunch of things like decreasing and increasing interest rates, which naturally create instability, but that's a topic for another time. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to create this dynamic where they can slow the economy down, that is slow the velocity of capital in the economy, slow consumer spending and all these elements so that they've got less demand, so you've got less inflation. Okay, And they'd like to do that in such a way that they don't crash the economy, right? They don't want to crash the economy. The problem is, is that they'd cut rates so much going, you know, because of COVID, that they had to then, they were late, obviously, they had to then raise them a bunch. And now the question is, well, where do you kind of stop that? And what's the right number and so forth? And, and you know, different people have different views on it, but they've sort of signaled to the market that the next rate increase would be 75 basis points. But of course, we've now seen some data and some facts out of England, the UK, out of, you know, sort of broad measures of financial conditions that, boy, things are pretty rough out there. And so the last thing they want to do is create a crisis. So the question is, are they more likely to create a crisis by sticking with their 75 basis points? Is both the fact of the 75 plus the messaging about how tough they're going to be on the availability of capital, is that going to create a crisis? Or are they better off to just ease off a bit so to let all the rate increases that they've done work their way through the economy, we know they're starting to work, and sort of see how it goes. Well, I don't think they know the answer. I certainly don't know the answer. The market every day makes a judgment up, down, sideways around, around that point and is right and wrong. And, and it's less clear than ever where we're at, but we do know for absolute certain that financial conditions, that is the amount of 
velo- the velocity of capital, the the willingness to invest, and the expansionary impact of capital has gone backwards in a big way. And you know that's from an environment where capital was very easy to one that's very tough. It's definitely created some some issues. How big are those issues? We don't know, but we remain vigilant. Do you have thoughts on where we're going to start seeing the impact of those issues, where we're going to see them manifest? Yeah. So my view is we're going to see those issues show up, in my view, in private credit. And the reason I focus on private credit in particular is that private credit is, you know, shadow banking is the area where none of us really knows how much credit has been supplied and under what conditions. Banks are robust. So I don't worry about banks. Their stock prices could go down. They could lose money. They, you know, But liquidity is not going to be an issue. But we're already seeing funds in Canada and the UK, real estate funds that have had big withdrawals of capital starting to gate investors, meaning they're starting to tell them, hey, we can't give you your money back right now because we got to go sell some assets in order to do that. We don't have enough liquid assets, easily saleable assets to do that. In the normal course, we'd have lots of assets lying around, but right now we don't. So those are the kinds of issues that we're, we're being faced with in the market as we find it. Right. On that note, I actually wanted to ask you what you think is interesting in the market right now. What are some assets that you got your eye on? Yeah, look, I think that there's some things technically, there's some things, you know, fundamentally. I think we are coming into the, it's always dangerous to make a forecast, but I think we're coming into the bottoming event for this part of the cycle. What do I mean by that? I think we finished this year higher than we are today in the S&P higher on Bitcoin, higher on most things. But I think that we go a lot lower first. And I think it could well be the setup from the disappointment of this whole, is it 75, is it 50 basis points. But I think that the setup probably suggests that we may see the S&P down to 3,300. I don't know, we go that low, I have no idea. But, you know, somewhere between 35 and 3,300. And we may see, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum and some of the cryptocurrencies, which I like to watch, you know, at much, much lower values before they go higher. We've seen the U.S. dollar retrace significantly, DXY retrace significantly. And I think we get another retest of dollar strength. And that creates our sort of event. And then we go, you know, along with the midterms and everything, I think we rally right through November and December and And who knows? Maybe that's it. But I think we're right into it here. And we're right into the teeth of it. And it could be this week, next week, the next couple of weeks. You know, we got lots of data. And uh, how do I know if I'm wrong? Well, the market will tell me right away. And, you know, I think there are plenty of signals in terms of levels in the market that will suggest to us that, that we're wrong. And if we're wrong, it's because the economy is actually slowing more significantly without crashing. And the Fed maybe only goes 50 basis points and we kind of get this Goldilocks soft landing scenario. And in that case, banks are a good buy. U.S. banks are a good buy. A nice steep yield curve. Yeah, I think you 
pretty much buy everything, you know, because you'll have a nice, relatively benign recession, if a recession at all in the U.S., and away you go. You know, it'll be, it'll all feel pretty good. But I think the more likely case is that we see an extreme event, the Fed have to sort of really pivot and you kind of close your eyes and buy. Anyway, that's my plan A. We'll see. What's your plan B? What happens if the Fed doesn't pivot to that degree, right? And we don't see that wonderful Goldilocks moment. So the Goldilocks moment happens in two ways, right? We go lower, harder, fast, or we just keep trading up and I have to buy everything higher up and, you know, probably go, oh, it's too expensive, but, you know, you'll just buy and and away you go. So if it doesn't go like that, it actually, you have a low and you think you're buying the low, but it goes even lower. It's much worse than you think. You've got kind of the 2008 sort of rolling thunder of a bad event now and then a little bit of a rally, but another bad event going into the early part Q1, Q2 of next year. And we don't bottom in equities until the early part of 2023. That's the really bad out. That's the worst scenario. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Gavin. We'll catch up next week and see what sort of chaos happens in the coming week until then. Yeah. Thanks so much, Rish. Uh, enjoyed speaking to you today. Thanks. And that's tomorrow's news. We'll be back next week 